Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 250. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. <laughs> well, Kat did it again. Yeah. yeah. How many times is this? I don't know. Um, probably nearing they're going to start charging me. I see. Okay. Yeah. You, uh, you mistakenly dialed 911 again. Yeah. So your phone, uh, well, most phones have a feature where you can like quick dial 911. And mine is where you hit the power button, I think, like yeah. five times in a row real fast. Yeah. And, uh, this has not worked out well for me so much. So, Okay. I was outside mowing the lawn, and I had my earbuds in, and I was listening to a podcast, and it kept cutting out because my phone was too far away, uh, because our lawn is expansive. Uh So I wanted to take my phone with me, but I didn't have any pockets in my shorts, So I devised a plan to put my phone in a sock and tie my sock to my bra, and (laughs) which worked out really well. Uh, I was mowing. Everything was going really great uh, because of my phone sock, Mm -hmm. and um, I needed to turn the volume up, and so I was hitting the button through the sock, uh, but I hit the wrong button, and it went whoop. Whoop! <laughs> and of course, I couldn't cancel the call because it's tied in a sock tied to my bra. <laughs> so I was trying to untie the mm-hmm. sock from my bra. Yeah. And I finally got it untied. And by that time, it was dialing. And so, what did you? Wh- well, of course, I stayed on the line. Okay. Because you don't want to hang up because that causes more suspicion. And the guy was like, 911, what is your emergency? And I was like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I boob dialed you. I guess technically it wasn't a boob dial. It was not a boob dial. Yeah. It was a it was a hand dial. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
via boob bra. sock. Yeah, yeah. Via, via bra boob sock. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. But I explained it. I was like, uh, I uh, accident. It was an accident. Yeah. And he was like, okay, but everything's okay there. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and if this had been an isolated situation, it would be one thing. Yeah. But you're definitely on some sort of list yeah. down there at yeah. uh, emergency services. Well, the thing is, if I don't have my glasses on, I cannot see anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like at night when I'm listening to ASMR or something, sometimes I'll hit the wrong button and it's all whoop, whoop. <laughs> God. Well, I'm glad that uh, there was no emergency. Yeah. But our uh, lawnmower did die immediately after that. We no longer have a functioning lawnmower. I don't know what happened. Are you saying that it's somehow related? That emergency services disabled one of your gardening implements <laughs> no, as, as a punishment to... Uh, need a new lawnmower. Oh, I see. All right. Well, let's move along. Um, I've got an interesting one for you. Yes, please. The Mary Celestia operated as a blockade runner for the Confederacy to transport banned goods in and out of Confederate ports. It's a boat? Yes. While trying to break the Union's blockade in the South during the Civil War, it was a very fast vessel. It was a side paddle wheel steamer. (laughs) Civil War story, huh? Steamer? (laughs) No, fair. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) The vessel was a side paddle wheel steamer. Chartered by the Confederate Army, but it sailed under a variety of names, including the Bijou and the Mary Celeste, not to be confused with the famous ghost ship of the same name. This is a different ship entirely. It attempted and succeeded in circumnavigating Union blockades. The ship was really fast, too. It, It peaked at about 17 knots. Don't know what that means. Nautical miles per hour, which yeah, is... Well, I mean, I know <laughs> I know what that means. I just don't know what it, it translates means, to. It means wicked fast bub for, for that particular time period and, and technology. It successfully outran Union ships while smuggling guns, ammunition, and supplies to the Confederacy. What? <laughs> just lawyers, guns, and money just popped ah, into my head. Okay. And I pictured this like Civil War boat, like... Like a Mark Twain kind uh, of boat. All listening to Warren Zevon. Yeah, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you have an interesting little mind. In 1864, the Mary Celestia left for Wilmington, South Carolina on one of those runs loaded down with a full cargo. They had food, ammunition, rifles, things of that nature. It was cruising the south shore of Bermuda. It had just left. It was up to 13 knots on a flat, calm day. And it was being captained by... A pilot from Bermuda, his name was John Bristow Virgin. He was considered to be one of the best sea captains in the business. Bermuda, huh? Bermuda. Not long into the voyage, the ship struck a section of reef at a very high rate of speed and sank quickly. Mm. That's where she sat for nearly 150 years until February of 2011. After a very intense storm pummeled Bermuda, the island's custodian of historic wrecks, Philippe Max Ruha, went to do a coastal survey, which is what they normally do. Okay. And he spotted a partially exposed bow of a ship. The bow belonged, of course, to the Civil War blockade runner, the Mary Celestia. Bermuda's treacherous underwater reefs have caused many ships to go down over the centuries in that area. In Mm. fact, there are over 300 vessels documented that are buried in and around the island of Bermuda. Oh, wow. 
So the wreck of the Mary Celestia lies on a flat, sandy seabed in about 55 feet of water and only 600 yards off the uh, south coast. The bow, the anchor, the paddle wheel, and boilers were all exposed after this storm. The paddle wheel frames remain standing in an upright position, and it's been described as a ghostly miniature Ferris wheel. Oh, okay. Parts of the wheelhouse are still intact. Divers found lumps of coal lying on the seabed, and not just any type of coal. I didn't even know this was a thing. This was very expensive, smokeless coal. Oh. They had smokeless coal. Uh, it was commonly commonly used by blockade runners to uh, evade Union ships. That you makes you don't sense. want to be blowing smoke up on the horizon. So they Though spent- I will absolutely recommend blowing smoke by Casey Musgraves. They spent about a week exploring the wreck. The team of divers and archaeologists, they ended up finding some really interesting artifacts. They found, of course, guns. Mm-hmm. They also found shoes and wine. And also, interestingly enough, two small bottles of perfume. Oh. The items were all packed together. The bottles of perfume and shoes and some guns and wine. That made them think that it was, uh, it was meant to be a gift. Oh, okay. Or four gifts. Sure. Kind of a, a care package. Um, are they finding skeletons? Are there bodies that they're finding? They did not find any any skeletons. It was re- it was right offshore. It was only six six hundred sixty yards offshore. So they probably just jumped overboard and swam back. Oh, okay. See, I pictured it was a it was a hoop, you know, some <laughs> sort some sort of watery death hoop. You mean like the Bermuda Triangle? Yeah. Only circular in nature. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, So they thought this was probably a a gift pack of some sort. Everything relatively intact. The two perfumes seemed to be one still contained a small air bubble inside. Etched on the glass were the names. Elizabeth Taylor, White Diamonds. No. PSA and Lubon in London. This was a very famous perfumery. I don't even know if that's a. Perfumer? Per, perfume. perfume. It, it's a place that made perfume. Let's perfumer. Back in the uh, Victorian ages. <sighs> Ruha brought the bottles to Isabel Ramsey Blackstone, who owned a local boutique perfume store, which is called Lily Bermuda. She immediately recognized that these were a very rare find. In the 1800s, she said, London was the center of perfume, uh, the perfume industry, and PSA and Lubon was the name of a very prominent perfume house on Bond Street. She says, it was a perfume that Queen Victoria would have worn. Oh. Ramsey Blackstone then had an idea. She wondered if she could recreate the fragrance 150 years after it had sunk to the bottom of the ocean. So because the air bubble was still in the perfume bottle, they could open it up and it would still be... Perfumey. Well, that's what they were hoping. They they were hoping that maybe both bottles would be good because they were okay. they were both sealed. And it, but according to Bermuda's law, all artifacts recovered from the sea become the property of the government. So Ramsey Blackstone was able to get permission to temporarily keep the bottles, and she took the ancient perfume to Jean Claude Delville, who is a perfumer. Yes, yes, uh-huh. he works for Drum Fragrances in New Jersey. It's one of the largest international companies that does this sort of thing. And because of the size of this company. They have all that fancy perfume equipment. Sure. <laughs> they had the equipment to perform gas chromatography. And using that technology, they hoped to reverse engineer the chemical formula 
by reading the molecular composition of the scent. That's so cool. It would then, of course, print out the names associated with the chemical compounds. Compounds, He said it was somewhat similar to reading DNA, except not really quite as, as complex. You know, it's interesting that you say that because when you said fancy perfume machines, yeah. I pictured like a centrifuge. Like, It's very similar. <laughs> they carefully scraped the mineral deposits off the bottles and they opened them. One bottle gave off this rotten, eggy smell. Gross. Some of the seawater had apparently seeped in and rendered the bottle of perfume useless. But the other specimen, the one with the air bubble, was completely intact after 150 years in the salty brine. Wow. Or the salty brine. Bobbing along. Bobbing along. On the bottom of the beautiful brine. No. They described it as smelling of orange, bergamot, and grapefruit. Ooh. With a faint hint of flowers and a top note of sandalwood. Okay, okay, I can get into this. They also said there were some musky animal notes. Okay, no, thank you. Such as uh, civet <laughs> and uh, ambergris. Now, we've talked about ambergris mm. before. That, that of course, comes from sperm whales. Uh, with a hint of ferret cage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. So because it had uh, citrus and flowers, but also animal musk, they couldn't really determine if it was a female scent or a male scent. But in doing research, they understood that there really, it wasn't differentiated much in those days. There weren't that many, hey, this is just for women. Mm -hmm. This is just for men. It was all kind of um, Which is the, the way same. I think it should be anyway. I don't understand why I would, like, what? what's the purpose of separating it? What's the purpose? Why? After smelling the fragrance, Ramsey Blackstone and Delville dipped a uh, blotter stick in the liquid and placed it in the uh, chromatograph. 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 Chroma the machine. The thing that would sort it out. Uh, the machine completed the molecular reading and printed out a list of hydrocarbons, acids, and other chemicals. So the next step was to translate these chemicals into the associated um, smelly compounds. This part was a lot trickier. Sure. So Ramsey Blackstone and Delville tried to search the annals of perfume for fragrances created by PSA and Lubon, particularly those of the co-owner Septimus PSA. PSA was a chemist and a perfumer who also wrote books about creating scents, and many of his records are still available, but, mm -hmm. but some were lost. So... They couldn't find the specific recipe for this scent. So Ramsey Blackstone and, and Delville started uh, basically sniffing and guessing, which sounds like a country album. <laughs> they settled on a few key ingredients, which included orange flower, roses, sandalwood, and vanilla. Quote, we use the chromatograph, chromogograph, the fancy smell machine, mm -hmm. and my nose to do the reconstruction. He added that... Uh, they tried very hard to achieve the perfume's exact aroma. We didn't want to create just a modern version of the fragrance. We wanted to stay true to the original scent. I love that. But to complicate the issue even more, they had to find modern alternatives to uh, ambergris right. and civet. I don't even know what civet is. It's like it comes traditionally back in that day. It came from um, the glands of uh, muskrats and... Oh, things of this nature. So I wasn't far off with ferret cage. No, you were pretty close. Um, it can sometimes be found naturally and without harm to the animals, but even so, it's not a reliable, consistent uh, resource. 
quote, in those day in those days, people gathered it and used it, but in 2020, no one does. So they had to decide on using man-made musk molecules, which today are engineered in a lab safely and reliably. Beyond finding modern-day alternatives to 19th-century scents, the team also had to use different solvents because the solvent that they used uh, at, at PSA 150 years ago was actually a skin irritant. It would burn your skin. Back then, they, they didn't put it right on them. Sure. They used perfume to spray their scarves mm-hmm. and their capes. Yeah, it was to protect them, of course, from the stink of Victorian London streets. That makes perfect sense. Otherwise, it would be like, oh, you smell like orange flower and also rash. And also slaughterhouse runoff. So then they had to figure out the exact proportions by trial and error. 110 different attempts. Wow. In several months, because... Once they would mix in specific different amounts, they had to let them age for several weeks. Each one had to age for several weeks. Mm -hmm. Finally, they got close to what uh, they presumed was the original formula. So then they flew to Bermuda because they said that the local scents naturally present in the air, sea salt and sand. Even the altitude can affect how smell is perceived. So they wanted to see what it smelled like, where they were going to launch it and then adjust the fragrance accordingly. And they both agreed that needed to be done. So they increased the level of orange flower and sandalwood to compensate for the elements in nature. I never considered that altitude could change how something smells. Yeah, me neither. I know that it can change how you're supposed to bake things. And how effective one's knuckleball is in the major leagues. And how well you sleep. Other than that, hadn't really given it much thought. So the two perfumers named their creation Mary Celestia. Naming the perfume after the ship that restocked Confederate forces wasn't meant to commemorate the blockade runner or any historical figures, Ramsey Blackstone said. She believes that the bottle was originally intended as a gift and she wanted to honor that long-gone relationship. Perfume, quote, even 150 years ago was meant to be an intimate gift between two people who had profound feelings for each other, she adds. Ramsey Blackstone issued a limited edition of this restored scent in September of 2014, a century and a half after the ship's demise. Wow. That run included 1,854 bottles, 1854, a reference to the year the ship sank. Uh, she donated some of the proceeds to the Professional Association of Diving Instructors. Quote, the perfume waited for 150 years to be worn. Ramsey Blackstone says, we were really excited to bring it to the people. The limited edition quickly ran out and customers wanted more. So today you can go online and buy Mary Celestia at the Lily Bermuda site for $130. It also comes in a travel size for just 35 bucks. And you ordered some for me as a gift because it's an intimate gift and you love me. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. I thought maybe this topic was a really a big lead up to me buying creative you way. Perfume. Of- yeah. I wish I wish I was that clever. I got my information from Atlas Obscura and Bermuda.com. This is so cool. I love the idea of recreating the scent. That's unreal. There's a guy who, uh, he had something to do with inventing the Xbox, and he's way into this sort of thing. He bought an antique bowl from, like, Egyptian times, and he was able to run some tests on on residue inside the bowl, mm-hmm. and he learned 
what the ingredients were for making the bread. He found all of the original ingredients and he regrew it the way it was back mm. then. And he recreated this loaf of Egyptian bread exactly the same way that they had made it in this bowl 4,000 years earlier. That's incredible. That's such a dedication to just curiosity. That's a dedication to wanting to explore something. Yeah. I wonder how much that cost. That reminds me of the story of the guy who decided he was going to make the world's best chicken sandwich. And so he grew the grain. He made the bread by hand. He grew the lettuce. He grew the onions. He raised the chickens. Oh, wow. He did everything. So he, all of this was to make a sandwich. With the goal of making a chicken sandwich. Right. The best chicken sandwich in the world. That was his goal. <laughs> okay. So he started the very basic elements, you know, growing the wheat and making wow. the bread. And it took him something like six months and it cost him $11,000. Holy shit. And he said, it was the worst thing I ever ate. No. Oh, no. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. In the year 1561... Many citizens in Nuremberg, Germany, witnessed two colossal black cylinders floating in the sky. These cylinders launched dozens of black and blue spheres, red crosses, and white discs. The witnesses said the objects looked as if they were fighting each other. An hour later, the objects disappeared. The newspaper described it as, quote, a very frightful spectacle. But it didn't stop there. Five years later, a similar incident occurred in Switzerland. On August 7, 1566, local inhabitants were mystified when they saw hundreds of black spears in the sky whirling around for hours. According to the town's journalist Samuel Kosius, the spheres looked, quote, as if they were fighting a battle, a great number of them becoming red and igneous. Thereafter, they were consumed and died out. There has never been a plausible theory to explain what caused these incidents. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month 
free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. There once was a podcast from Nantucket. Okay, can't finish that one. This is The Box of Oddities. Krista sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com, in regards to my story in the last episode about uh, Bachelors Grove Cemetery. Oh, yeah. She says, I'm a Chicago native and several years ago acted as a model in a shoot at that cemetery. I don't have the rights to send any photos, sadly, but I can share my experience. On arrival at the site, we had a very uneasy feeling. And stepping out of the car, we thought there were several other cars in the parking lot. But once we started down the path toward the cemetery, we looked back at the car and the car we came in was the only one present. Huh. Outside the cemetery itself, we discovered the site was outlined in salt. And that would creep me out. Our unease grew, but we went on because we were dumb 20-somethings. <laughs> we went about our photo shoot, which was pretty cliche, edgy goth bullshit. I was styled in a corset and drenched with false blood. Uh, we thought we were very unique, taking cliche horror pictures in a known haunted location. But everyone involved felt off. One of the other models kept telling us that she kept feeling that she was being stared at, but she brushed it off. Suddenly, we all very clearly heard a baby crying uh -huh. and saw a large dog pacing the edge of the site, which is one of the things that we had talked about, this large black dog. At that point, we left in a rush. When the photos were developed, a shadowy gray-white figure was vaguely visible in nearly all the pictures. Wow. I don't know what happened that day, but something was clearly going on. Thank you, Krista. 
That's an amazing firsthand account. That is really interesting. And knowing that one of the people involved with those photos is a professional photographer, I mm. would assume. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you probably should call the police. <laughs> I, I like getting a professional's input when it comes to photos of like like let's say orbs mm -hmm. that kind of thing sure. uh, because they can say okay this is because of light coming in from over here or this is because of this lens that you used or blah, blah, blah. well the lady who did uh our uh publicity photos mm. erica from closer north commented on that uh that video that we posted of the orbs in our kitchen and she said that's not lens flare she said i'm not saying it's orbs but i don't know what it is it's orbs yeah she she did comment on that. <laughs> yeah. She's a treasure, by the way. Check her out. Closer North. All right. What you got for me? A Civil War story. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is happening? Oh. <sighs> September 19th and 20th, 1863. It's the American Civil War. The Battle of Chickamauga, which I want to say Chickamauga. I don't know why, but I... I, I want to say Chicken the Chinese, the Chinese Chicken. Have a drumstick and your brain stops ticking. Watch an X-Files with the lights on. We're Don's La Maison. I hope, I hope the, the smoking man's, man's in this one. one. Anyway. The battles between the U.S. and Confederate forces, it marked the end of a Union offensive, the Chickamauga Campaign, in southeastern Tennessee and northwestern Georgia. Jacob Miller, a native of Logansport, served in Company K of the 9th Indiana Infantry during the Civil War. During the month of May at Vicksburg, the Union forces tried on several occasions to storm the city. One of the charges was taken up by volunteers. It would become known as the Charge of the Volunteer Storming Party. Among those who volunteered was Jacob Miller. It was during this charge that Miller was cited for his audacious courage and awarded the Medal of Honor. Ooh. So let's get back to September, though. September 19th, Private Miller is found in the middle of the second bloodiest battle of the war, the Battle of Chickamauga. The number of casualties uh, were second only to those at Gettysburg. Jacob's a private in the Union Army and, unfortunately, was shot in the head. That'll ruin your day. Yeah. He sustained a buck and ball round to Ooh. the forehead. Ooh. Um, I had to look up what buck and ball means because uh, I don't know anything. Buck and ball consisted of a single round musket ball and three buckshot. And it was intended to compensate for the inaccuracy of guns at that point. Yeah, the Confederacy especially, they didn't have rifled muskets. And so accuracy was not really there and you could only shoot one at a time yeah one one round at a time so you so. might as well shove a bunch of stuff in there yep. and see what hits um unfortunately it was jacob jacob was shot in the forehead uh right between the eyes Ooh. and he was left for dead when his company fell back from their position jacob said when i came to my senses i was found in the rear of the confederate line this is according to an interview Jacob when, gave to what? his local newspaper when in he, 1911. When he came to his senses after getting shot right between the eyes That's with right. buck and ball. <laughs> Jacob's main concern at that point was that he was in with the Confederate line and he did not want to become a prisoner. So he was able to stand up and he began oh walking with the aid of his rifle. So he was kind of using it as a crutch yeah. or a, a, a cane. 
He made his way through the Confederate troops and off the field of battle. He said, I suppose I was so covered with blood that those that I met didn't notice I was a Yank. Jacob continued walking until he struck an old byroad and he started following it. He said that at that point, his head was so swollen that his eyes had had swollen shut and he had to hold them open. He had to hold his eyelids up so that he could see. I've had a few nights like that myself, but it wasn't because a bucking ball <laughs> hit me in the forehead. It was more like a Jaeger shot. Eventually, he got tired and he laid down on the side of the road. Some people passing by saw him. They put him on a stretcher and they carried him to the nearby field hospital. Jacob remembered lying in the hospital tent and a hospital nurse came to put a wet bandage over his wound. I suppose that's probably going to help. She gave him a canteen of water. The surgeons examined his wound and they decided it was best not to operate on him because it would be so painful Mm. and he didn't have much time to live. So they didn't want to make his last hours as excruciating as pulling a musket ball out of his head would have made them. Not to mention the buck. So the nurse took him back to the tent and he went to sleep for a little while. The next morning, the doctors came around. They were making a list of the wounded that they were sending to Chattanooga. But they said that because of the nature of his injury, he was too far gone to move. So they were going to leave him there. They explained to him... It's fine. You'll be taken prisoner and you can be exchanged later. This is this is a very bad day. Yeah. He said, I made up my mind as long as I could to drag one foot after another and I would not be taken prisoner. Wow. He got a nurse to fill his canteen with water. All like, just I need a drink. Can you fill this, please? And then snuck out of the tent. Oh my God. He had to hold his eyeball open still. I mean, you know, uh, get bearings on the road. And then he would let his eyes close again because he couldn't just shovel himself down the road with his rifle as a cane and hold his eyes open. So he would hold his eyes open and get an idea what direction the road was going in. And then he would close, let his eyes close and then hobble along with the butt of his rifle as a crutch. Yep. He said basically he was walking away from the sound of the cannons. Um, so as long as he knew that that sound was behind him and every once in a while he'd force open his eyelid, get a get his bearings, and then hobble some more with a gunshot between his eyes. I got a splinter in my foot the other day. Yeah, and I, I had, had to perform surgery. I had to lie down and I, I was, <clears throat> was going to call 911, but I figured they would think it was just another false alarm that's enough out of you he said i worked my way along the road as best i could at one time i got off to the side of the road and i bumped my head against a low-hanging limb the shock toppled me over i got up i took my bearings again and went on as long as i could drag a foot and then lay down beside the road. Not long after uh, he laid down at one point, a wagon came by taking wounded to Chattanooga. One of the drivers asked if I was alive. I'm assuming he he responded with yes. In the affirmative. As one of the men had died back a ways, they got him on the wagon. 
Once inside the wagon, he lost consciousness. The next day, he woke up inside a building in Chattanooga. He was laying with hundreds of other wounded people on the floor. He said it was thick as hogs in a stock car. Some were talking, some were groaning. I raised myself to a sitting position, got my canteen, and wet my head. He heard that there were a couple of soldiers from his company in that same building, and that they were looking for him because they couldn't believe that he was alive. The last they knew, they had left him for dead on the field. So they came over, they chatted for a bit. That must have been weird. Totally. Must have been kind of like how the uh, how the crew felt when they realized they left Matt Damon on Mars. <laughs> Just like that. So an order came for all the wounded that could walk to start across the river on a pontoon bridge to the hospital. So they were going to be treated and taken to Nashville. So he said, all right, if you can lead me, then I'm happy to walk. So here he goes a walking again. Whew. The next morning, they were at a camp. They had some food. He had some coffee. I bet that was really nice. An orderly rode up and asked if they were wounded, which I would think <laughs> was pretty obvious <laughs> Yeah. at that point. It's just a scratch. <laughs> there was a surgeon there who washed and redressed his wound. That was the first time that it had been wow. washed and redressed since his initial Injury. Now, is he behind enemy lines? I mean, he's in Tennessee. Is he in a Union hospital or is he being cared for by the Confederates or do we know this? No, it, it from my understanding, it was Union. It was Union. Yeah. Okay. So after that, uh, he got some supplies, crackers, coffee, a cake of soap, and then they were sent by wagon to Bridgeport, Alabama. He was on the wagon and it was a very bumpy ride. And he said that the the bumpiness of the wagon ride was so painful so he got out and walked the rest of the way that was not uncommon ambulances in those days were just wagons yeah. they had no suspension and it was said many times wounded soldiers would just pray please just let me leave me on the side of the road to die yeah i can't take this anymore that's how i feel like when we i really have to pee and you can't <laughs> yeah. find a place to stop and i'm like just let me die <laughs> just this is the worst leave me at this rest stop so anyway they walked 60 miles to bridgeport Holy shit. It took four days to get there. During that journey, Jacob was finally able to open his right eye without using his fingers. Ooh. And he still has the stuff in his head. Yeah. Yeah. The surgeon wasn't able to or did not remove. They just treated and, and, and bandaged him. Just washed him it yeah. and bandaged him. So he was transferred from there to a, a hospital in Louisville, then to another in New Albany, Indiana. He recalled that in each hospital he was in, in Nashville, in Louisville, in New Albany, that he begged surgeons to operate, but they wouldn't. Wow. <clears throat> Finally, he was able to convince two doctors to agree to operate on his wound after nine months. Whew. They took out the musket ball and Jacob stayed in the hospital until his enlistment expired, which was in September of 1864. So a year after he was wounded. Yeah. He returned to the hospital at Madison and stayed there. And the, the surgery went really well. Everyone was pleased with how it went. I can't imagine that it wouldn't have gone better before things started to heal around yeah, stuff. But, yeah. you know, I'm not a doctor, so I don't get to make these calls. So he was sent home. You know, the, he was doing good. 17 years later, he recalled in an interview, 
A buckshot dropped out of my wound. What? 17 years later? 17 years later. So he's doing this interview with the newspaper and talking about how it took 17 years and this this buckshot worked its way out of his head. God, that's amazing and and really kind of creepy and disgusting. Super creepy. What's even creepier is 31 years later, two more pieces of lead just fell out of his head. Oh, my God. Did he keep them? You know, I don't know. I would have. But as I said, from time to time, a piece of lead or a bullet would fall out of his wound. Otherwise healthy, Jacob Miller lived well into his 70s. That is incredible. What's incredible to me is that he earned a Medal of Honor for audacious courage, uh, but not for that time that he was shot in the middle of the head (laughs) and survived. Did they it was have, for some other thing. Did they have Purple Hearts back then? You know, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know much about that. Because if that doesn't qualify, nothing does. It's friggin' nuts. That is something. Wow. That is some, some incredible fortitude. Yeah. And uh, he, in interviews that he did, he was so positive and said that he wasn't mad about what happened. You know, it doesn't make any sense to have a negative attitude. Mm-hmm. You know. He's just sure. one of those positive kind of guys. Plus, the uh, government gave him $40 a month. Oh, well, so, there, so that's, that seems fair. <laughs> wow. It's amazing that he went through all that and, and didn't hold grudges and didn't complain. Yeah. He held were... more lead than he did grudge. <laughs> there you go. Which I... I think about the stories you told me when you were working in customer service and how completely devastated people were when their end table showed up damaged. <laughs> Right. Like they couldn't go on. (laughs) Yeah. um, Perspective, guys. (laughs) I guess it is. As I've mentioned before, once you stop listening to this podcast, we cease to exist. (laughs) Quantum physics suggests that that's true. Uh, So if you would leave a a positive review wherever you listen, iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is. It helps us. I don't know how, but it it supposedly does. It supposedly does. Plus, when we see it, we blink back into reality again because we're real, but only if you say nice things. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us and supporting us and being an amazing community of people and sharing your stories and your lives with us. It is really it is an experience that I I just can't believe that I get to be a part of. So many people have said over the last couple of years that they feel like we're best friends. We feel that way too. We feel like you're our friends. And we had no idea when we started doing this that we'd still be here with over, you know, going on 8 million downloads. That just blows my mind. Well, I mean, don't exaggerate. We have 7.5 million downloads. We have a little bit more than 7.5. It's like when you say that we're going on 10 years of marriage. It's like, yeah, but it's five. (laughs) But we're going on. (laughs) All right, (laughs) 7.53 million downloads which is about 7.52 million more than i expected when we started and it's because of you guys and and believe us when we say we do not take it for granted we look forward to seeing you next time until then keep flying that freak flag and fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, 
That is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.